You must be like the wolf pack, not like the six pack. Teamwork. Yes! Hello everyone and welcome to another episode of There's No I Am Podcast, a podcast about teams. It's a podcast about being in teams. It is a podcast about leading teams and making the most out of the teams that you are in. My name is Mark Johnson. I am a performance maker and a performance teacher and I am joined as always by my partner in pod, Sean Gallagher. Hello, Sean. Hey, Mark. Sean, we've got a phenomenally interesting person on this week, haven't we? Very excited about this one. Uh, was following um, Chris for a while and was loving the content. I also heard him on another podcast as well, the Sports Psych Show, hosted by Dan Abrahams. Uh, I would go and check that out once you've listened to ours, of course. Uh, but yeah, super <laughs> excited. The Chris that you are hinting at there is Chris Shambrook. He has an organization called Planet K2 that use a whole bunch of knowledge that he has accumulated as a sports psychologist for elite teams. And when we say elite, we mean utterly elite. We're talking about the most winningest teams in British history, some of. Uh, he's been Team GB for rowing. He's worked for some of our greatest cricket players and has been working as uh, a psychologist and in this respect, a consultant on helping people to uh, think, prepare and perform like elite athletes for over 30 years. Chris is so full of knowledge. It was so exciting to hear him speak. Honestly, like really, really fascinating to speak to Chris. Uh, as I said, I think in the episode, I could have just spent an hour just talking about Team GB rowing. Um, <laughs> but we kind of wanted to get more out of him than just that. And, you know, at that very elite performance level, there's a lot that can be learned from it. But we also want to give our audience kind of something where they can maybe take it into the office. And that's where I think Planet K2 comes in because that's where he is going into organizations and teams and working with those guys as well to be the best that they can be. So, um, yeah, we wanted to get a flavor of both that elite performance level, but also kind of what Planet K2 are doing on a day to day basis uh, with big corporations. And what I find sort of fun about that is it is kind of a companion piece or an answer to that thing that Hal was saying in last week's episode about like why are we talking to sports people you know when creative people have this untapped resource I think Chris's episode demonstrates kind of where that the value in someone to translate elite performance into these contexts makes it super super sensible and and and, and even Hal acknowledged like if we're talking about performance at this level or aiming for something elite, then yes, yeah, sports people are the, uh, are the ones we're supposed to be speaking to. Whereas his idea of uh, expanding on creativity, like that's who you want to be talking to. Yeah. And I just think it goes to show you how eclectic our, our guests can be. <laughs> and that, you know, not every week is, you know, just talking to uh, elite kind of um, athletes or, or coaches, you know, because um, we, we want to on this podcast get a real flavor from lots of different industries, from lots of different people in different backgrounds as to what makes a great team uh, and how you can be great in a team and, and how best to run one. And you've got to go looking all over the place for that. 
you know, Absolutely. not just in sport, not just in the creative world, not just in performing arts. You've got to go dig for it all over the place. Yeah. And I hope that our episodes um, are kind of displaying that and showcasing all different industries have different ways of, of going it. about yeah. it. Exactly. Before we jump into the episode, Dave, thank you so much for everyone who dropped us messages during the week to say how much they liked the new tune to open the episode. We really appreciate it. Yeah, some good feedback, actually. So we are now going to become sort of producers, Mark. Right? Yeah, we'll, be, we'll start becoming SoundCloud rappers mm. and see how we do in that. But while we are working on our flow, uh, we can uh, hand over to us talking to Dr. Chris Shambrook. Teamwork. Yes. So we are uh, very, very excited and hugely privileged to have joining us today on the podcast, Dr. Chris Shambrook. Dr. Chris is a renowned sports psychologist and uh, one of the directors of Planet K2, that uh, is an organization that looks at performance and performance teams. Welcome, Dr. Chris. Uh, great to be here, very many thanks for the invitation. Yeah, looking forward to sharing with you a lot of what we've learned over the last oh, 19, 20 years at Planet K2 and, uh, uh, and you know, everything that we do with teams and performance in lots of different settings. So we're uh, going to be great to get into some of the meat of that. Phenomenal, really excited. Awesome. Hi, Chris. Thank you so much for coming on. Um, yeah, no problem, sure. Really excited. Um, I actually came across you via um, Dan Abraham's podcast, The Sports Psych Show, um, which I, I would say probably really delves into sports psychology and uh, maybe is for more of the fanatics, I would say. Like it really does deep dive into stuff and research and we stay away from that on this podcast. <laughs> <laughs> um, but um, uh, a real privilege, as I said, to have you on and really excited to to get into Planet K2 and all the work that you've been doing. I think first off, could you just for our, for our audience, just take us back and um, give us some of some of your background and you know what what you've been doing over over that last twenty years, especially from a kind of Team GB point of view. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, from a from a personal point of view, in 1995, I kind of finished my PhD and qualified as a sports psychologist. 1997, I started working with the British rowing team um, as their sports psych. And had the privilege of working through five Olympic cycles, a little bit of work in this cycle as well, and in the, in, in through to Tokyo. So uh, uh, had a great sort of period of time immersed in that world of high performance rowing, individual and collective excellence, and you know the track record of the, of the team over that time. I learned a lot from a lot of great people, but also in that time. I was also working at the England and Wales Cricket Board. I've done stuff with the Cambridge University Boat Race Crew. I've done stuff with various other sports organisations, UK sports. Uh, so I had a sort of a, a varied uh, career in that area. But in 2003, Planet K2 was set up. And in that time, since that time, we have been on a mission to help the world think, prepare and perform like elite athletes. So we've taken a bunch of the stuff that we've got from the world of working with high performance sport and said, right, okay, well, why should it just be the uh, coaches and athletes that use this stuff to get better? Actually, the world of work is probably more competitive, more challenging. Let's see if we can take some of what we've learned in the laboratory of Olympic sport and apply it to that environment and those very different challenges that exist that everyone who's listening who works in the world of work knows that it's it's even tougher, more competitive every day. You get less time to train. You've got more competition. The cost of you know failure is equally high. The margin for error is very low. So you know they're they're, they're equal. They're parallel universes, but they're not treated necessarily in the same way as to how people are helped to prepare. I love that, and I love this uh, one. I love the idea of the 
a, a performant environment at the elite level as a laboratory, as a continuous uh, experimentation to get better. And I do find that that thing that you've described of trying to consider business or the world of work or the marketplace as having equal stakes is quite difficult for your everyday person because we idolize sports people, because we see them as uh, the pinnacle of something. It's quite difficult to reframe our own professional lives in that way and see it with those kind of stakes. Yes, and, and particularly given that, you know, if you think about it, for most elite athletes, they are in the business of trying to outdevelop their opponents through practice to compete relatively infrequently. Yeah, it's like it's like an it's like an arms race or a space it, it, race. Absolutely. Whereas in the world of work, you're on the field of play every day. You don't actually get that chance to systematically be kind of go. Well, how do how do we get better? And how do we get better at getting better than the opposition? Where you're chasing the number, you're chasing the targets all the time. And so that that's where the laboratory bit. Well, this is the world in sport where you where you've got this intense focus on understanding what it takes to keep improving when you're amazingly good already. So if we can capture some of that and stick it into the world of work where you can be both developing and delivering at the same time, there's got to be value in that. And that's what we've had a lot of good fun, you know, over the years sort of challenging and supporting organizations to try and bring that culture in. You know, you see organizations, they have continuous improvement initiatives and they have learning and development um, departments. Yeah. This world of sport doesn't have that. Every day is continuous improvement. There's no L and D because every day is doing that. Because doing it is the development. That's absolutely. So if we can bring some of that in, you then get continuous improvement has even more meaning. Learning and development has particular focus for the right stuff rather than just any stuff. So we've been playing with that for a long time and, and getting more and more confident at kind of, you know, making the bridge between the two as well as appreciating the differences that exist where you can't just kind of copy and paste. I think just going back to that uh, experience with with that Team GB um, and over so, so many years, you know, there's a there's a level of consistency that you would have to have going in going into those cycles. Um, and you know, we'll probably get into it more, but you know, you can have a successful team or you can have one successful cycle. It's very difficult to have two or three or four, or it's very difficult for you as an individual to perform year in, year out, or you know, game by game. What have you personally done, not so much from the athlete point of view, but from from your point of view, to be that consistent and to remain at that level where Team GB asks you to come back for another cycle and another cycle? Yeah, yeah. So you know, team, so the rowing team specifically, yeah, yeah, that that was that was really interesting. So I started in 1997. Steve Redgrave was on the way to his fifth Olympic gold medal. Matthew Pinson on the way to his uh, third. Um, so you, you're joining a culture where there is a lot of that inherent kind of expertise and confidence from having done stuff before, but the need to know that you've signed up to do it again. So for me, that was just really useful to become part of that. Firstly, getting in there sort of relatively young, thinking, oh, bloody hell, how am I going to add value here to some of these people, as well as the other people who were similarly starting first time as I was. Um, so Catherine Granger started on the team in 1997, the same same year I did. So that really helped where you've got this constant um, conveyor belt of people who are continuing and passing on their wisdom and those people who are fresh and inexperienced, who are bringing that kind of open mind as well as the desire to learn. And I think that's what I was able to do. I was able to increasingly think, 
what am I going to give, deliver as some consistent factors and some consistent qualities that I want to get across? But how do I keep upgrading and improving and paying forward what I've learned to try and fast track, you know, some of the development of other people going forward? So it, that, that environment, you know, it, it, it begets that kind of personal growth and staying relevant, but also building on what's known and trusted. It sounds like a little bit like a football, a successful football team. Sometimes they talk about a mixture of youth and experience within a team is can be can be very uh, fruitful. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I and I think if you look at the last Olympics and you think from Rio, the British rowing team actually had eighty percent of the team leave. So you're try you're trying to repeat a recipe from previous Olympic cycles with now way more people having decided that that was time up previously there was much more of that continuity to take the wisdom of ages forward but then you were looking to add so that so the, the ratio was slightly different between those who have been there before and those who were doing it for the first time so i actually think in context the set of results that have been delivered this time around and the performances particularly have actually they they, they all go well for the future it was just a different recipe going in this time and a lot of change within the whole system as well so as the psychologist behind that or alongside that, and you're looking at the team in that environment with that changeover, does it then become your role to give a name to or label some of the stuff that is trying to be kept, some of the stuff that you're trying to make team knowledge or organisational knowledge rather than just one guy being amazing? Yeah, but pro- probably not so much in the setup as it was the Sykes role, and and so I wasn't there full time, but but certainly, you know, that's where from a strategy perspective that comes down to the performance director, that comes yeah. down to the chief coaches, whose job it is to create that environment within which, on a day to day basis, the athletes recognise that there is known and tested and familiar and a reason to be confident, as well as being given the opportunity to bring their own. Uh, insight and expectations and ambition to the mix as well. So, so you're looking really to try and do that on a on a organisational level. And I think with a lot of the turnover that, that was had with performance director, chief coaches, you kind of see how you know actually you lose a lot of that um, organisational intelligence and confidence by losing the performance director, two chief coaches, you know, other other key people as well. So you've got other people coming in looking to build on that, but also with their own ideas. So it actually mixes it up quite a lot and things are now settling down. And, and, I, and I think you'll see sort of, you know, much more of an ownership of, well, this is our version of it now, rather than trying to hang on to some of this stuff. But what it does talk about is, you know, how well planned are you for some of those changeovers, whether it's key staff or athletes, it goes back to Alex Ferguson leaving Man United. You know, you, if that had been planned for, you would not have let Reni Mullenstein leave at the same time. You would not have let someone come in to bring a new manager and a whole new backroom staff. You, you just wouldn't do that because you leave, you lose the conscience of the organisation and, and, the, and the wisdom of it as well. As soon as you were talking uh, on that point, Chris, I immediately just thought of the the rotation of football managers and how quickly now it can happen. It can be fifty six days. It can be you know yeah, it, can, yeah. it can be six months. Yeah. Um, and how do you expect an organisation to have any continuity moving forward and any sort of plan and purpose? Um, which you know purposes you speak about a lot with regards to sort of teams and organisations. How can you expect that if fifteen backroom staff have just left to go to another? 
club six months in and you're a player on a four-year contract. So, yeah, I'd, I'd yeah, you're, definitely you're constantly, relate to that. You're constantly asking people to chase results rather than constantly asking people to come in and add to the culture of performance and the principles that we have decided we want to have independent of who the personalities are here. And, you know, and that's the difference between chasing results and chasing performance. So that raises a question for me um, that I'm going to, that I'm going to direct specifically at you and your process when it comes to induction, when it comes to taking, uh, you know, a young player or a new team member and getting them to understand that culture and get on board with that culture. And even in, in particular circumstances where you've got someone with less experience coming onto an incredibly performant team, and that comes with its own psychological uh, weight on the new team member, how do, you, how, how do you encourage that first step into the team? Like, join us. Yeah, so, because uh, again, I think there's, t- there's two answers here. There's one as a psychologist, it's my role to kind of go, okay, um, I'm here, this is my role in the organisation, I'm going to help you achieve X, Y and Z, what have you done before, let me know where you're at, how are you seeing this and, and, and let me kind of help you manage your psychological transition into the organisation by understanding some of the principles that are there but but more importantly understanding you know, what the story of this person is and, and how we can sort of facilitate that coming in. Because the, the other answer is, well, it's the culture's job. And everyone is the culture. So it's actually how do we as an organisation go about helping someone who is new to us, understand us and add to us and and value what we have in place already. So, and, and again, I, I think that's very hard to do, which is why most organisations don't do it. They have an induction process and they hope that's enough rather than kind of go, well, hey, everyone, we're, we're the culture it's all of our responsibilities to welcome this person in and support them and challenge them and sort of, you know, a- allow them to change the change the biochemistry of our culture. We've now got this person in there that adds something new. The hole is still there, but we've now got an extra special bit. How do we how do we become better together now? It's uh, it's never good when you receive an email two weeks into someone starting and you don't have a clue. <laughs> well, yeah, yeah, two, yeah, I'm sure there are people who will do that many more months than two weeks in as well. So. That's there's there's something lovely you were saying there that, and I, I'm I'm interested to know what what might be a process for this, but this this changing of the biochemistry, this understanding what the newness adds or how the newness changes us as a team. Is there a is there a process that we can go through to identify that or is that is that an organic process of be like awareness and, and mindfulness of, of what what's happening now? Yeah, so 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 I I think this is where you want to be thinking about how how do we tackle this problem? Is this from the individual into their team, into their local area of the business and we're kind of they're, they're, it's kind of going upwards? sort of into the organization as a whole, or are we trying to do something that culturally says, let's embrace this person to help them understand the context so that they can then start making much more sense of departments and teams and then their role within it. Where you've got intact teams and those teams are really teams and they are incredibly well set up, I think it's a lot easier to bring the individual in and then embrace them and sort of say, right, you know, welcome. This is what our team's all about. This is this is you know our purpose. This is how we 
uh, track our success and our development. And this is the role you're going to be playing. This is what we're excited to bring in, bring you in to do. But what are you excited to add to that, having heard that? And so I think that's where you get where teams are really well set up. It allows that to come in. And I think I think um, in the book, Nine Lies About Work, um, Marcus Buckingham and colleague, whose name I always forget, who was the first author on it, talk about cult- culture doesn't exist. Um, what does exist, you need to work at the team level because it's a lot easier to actually get team culture. And if we start getting loads of team cultures that are then complementary, then you can kind of upgrade that. Build that into organisation. Absolutely. I forgot where this where this actually came from, but um, I think there's an article talking about sort of the first 20 members of the organisation are the culture. So, you know, if you were starting a startup from scratch tomorrow, those first 20 employees would be kind of what the culture is. That doesn't, that's not good or bad. That could mean a terrible culture. It could be mean a great culture, but like those first 20 people is kind of almost small enough to be able to kind of tackle those smaller teams, or that could just be the one small team, that 20 people. But then, like you said, when you then invite the 21st person in, 20 people are going, hi, this is how we work. This is how things are here. Um, and then it, it can really build, uh, you know, into a bigger organization. Yeah, well, and, and, and hopefully that first 20 has decided what culture they want to create rather than just sort of being fascinated obs- observers of which culture actually emerges as a function of them being together. Yes. Yeah, some, de- some <laughs> deliberateness rather than just yeah. like biology, yeah. rather than just studying the uh, ecosystem. Yeah, well, yeah, I talked to lots of teams about, you know, have you heard of Tuckman's model of forming, norming, storming and performing and then adjourning? And so, okay, you must have gone, oh, yes, yes, we know that. And so what stage, what stage are you in? And they go, oh, well, I'm not sure. And they go, well, look, let's not bother about the stages. Let's just move through them as effectively as possible yeah. rather than sort of curiously go, I wonder which stage we're at now. Well, why wait? Let's do some stuff that moves us through forming to storming. Yeah. And, and and so we take control of that rather than kind of curiously sort of, you know, be fascinated by, oh, look, we've moved stages. How how serendipitous for us. I've got a bunch of a bunch of stuff to talk about, <laughs> but what you've just said there has reminded me of something I heard you say on on another podcast in terms of taking control. Mm-hmm. And you describe uh, a situation where uh, a a performance athlete takes control of their failures or takes control of the... The potential of failure, yeah. The potential of failure, exactly. In the Planet K2 context, like, how do you, how do you give that almost luxury to a, to a team that is laying down the railway tracks as the train is already running, that is, that is moving uh, and isn't a developmental process? Yeah, so I, I, I think... Again, that that comes back to working with the team to very clearly define for them what success looks like. Success both in terms of outcome, but more importantly, success in terms of how we go about performing. Because when we start having those conversations... In the sense of, are we following a, a, a fixed process or a, a, a successful process? Well, yeah. So one, there's, 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 are there performance processes we follow, but also is the spirit and the mindset and the attitude and the behaviours within that process, are we building a reputation with ourselves and those people that we engage with um, through, through the choices we make? So I'm talking a lot to organisations at the moment about it's really important to define both acceptable and unacceptable success and failure. So for this team, what is the acceptable success that you are pursuing in terms of your outcome and the way in which you go about it? 
have you considered an unacceptable success version of that? So you get the results, but actually the, the cost of it to the team and your reputation or your health or the, your your commercial reputation, whatever it might be, is unacceptable. Now, have you considered acceptable failure? You haven't quite hit on some of the metrics, but the way in which you've gone about pursuing it has made you proud. And, and have you considered unacceptable failure? You've probably, you've all got thought about it, but you haven't collated, we will not have our name against a, a missing of outcomes that has associated with these kind of behaviors and mindset. When you do that, that's when you provide a team with the opportunity to kind of go, well, look, are we going to choose to do this in a way that is acceptable or unacceptable to us from a how we do it perspective? One of these things is going to happen. What are we going to do to control which quadrant we land? Absolutely. And, and also we can choose to behave in a way that is unacceptable to us that would lead to failure. We can do that. It, it would not be recommended or we can't see a reason why. But now we, be, we now we give the control back by kind of going, let's stop fearing failure because you can behave your way into it if you want to. And that's where vision becomes so important and values become so important organisation. The, the defining the success in terms of the how as yeah. well as the what. Yeah. yeah. This is what I find so fascinating just talking about teams and probably why um, myself and Mark are doing a podcast on it because we really enjoy it, obviously. But it's just because, you know, all of those things you're talking about there, Chris, you know, and the values and the purpose and everything, like I'm, I'm all in, like I'm all in on that. And I agree with it. And I've run, you know, lots of different teams uh, at different levels. And, you know, I've always tried to, to impart, you know, values and, and purpose and things like that. And, you know, what's our why and what does success look like? I'm not saying I've done it to an elite level, but, you know, I've tried to impart some of that. But when you do go into some of these organizations, you may be talking to the founder, the directors, you may be talking to the board. Mm -hmm. But like, we also have to get on board the intern right at the bottom of the rung and the, they have to buy in, you know, you're on 20,000 pound a year, maybe on a one year contract, you know, you're just about yeah. paying your rent, uh, et cetera. You're living in central London, you're living with four flatmates. It's not ideal. You're going to work every day. You do the nine to five. And then we've got these heady kind of purposes and values. And are you bought into this? And are, are we, is this acceptable failure? And a yeah. CEO driving a Bentley. Yeah. 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 This, is this acceptable failure? I mean, that's what I think is so difficult about yeah. this. Well, that, so, so, but I'll challenge you because they don't, they don't have to buy in. You can create a culture that invites them to understand the value of what we're trying to do and how we're trying to achieve it. And we can invite them to understand the role that they are currently playing and how they are going to contribute to that. Uh, and they can understand how they might be able to develop to contribute more. But equally, just from a motivational level, that's why it's important. Some people are motivated by that bigger picture stuff. Some people, it, it doesn't spark their motivation. For other people, they are perhaps motivated a little bit more in the pursuit of some successes that are measurable and some hitting of some milestones along the way. And for some other people, they are motivated by day-to-day -day growth and development that they see in themselves and those around them. But that's why we want to make sure that all of those ingredients are told in the whole story so that that person on £20,000 a year can see which bits that are most meaningful to them uh, how that works for them, but they can connect it to the other bits that might be more meaningful to colleagues that they're interacting with. And, and But that's, again, how we help. You know, we want to make sure that people are given the opportunity to understand this motivational fabric rather than just come in and kind of say, this is what the organisation is trying to deliver in numbers this year. This is the part you're going to play. Please don't miss your targets. Absolutely. Absolutely. Super straightforward. And you actually, uh, and we'll talk a little bit 
uh, deeper about this, and this might be the moment for it. Very helpfully on Planet K2's website, you set out some of your rules for performance. And one of them is don't motivate people, which sounds so counter to this kind of attitude of enthusiastic uh, motivation, this kind of TED talkness of leadership. That that this idea, yeah, you're not necessarily going to motivate people. They just need to understand where they create create the opportunity and the environment within which everyone is interacting in such a way that we grow our motivation together. But it is not my job as a leader to go to work to motivate someone. And and the the don't demotivate comes. It does. It's. it's I think it. I stole it from Jim Collins's book Good to Great, where he talked about level five leaders don't motivate. They're superb at not demotivating. They right. they don't do stuff that takes away a sense of control. They don't do stuff that reduces a sense of confidence, and they don't do stuff that allows silos and isolation to be predominant characteristics of the organisation. So that's where that comes from. So okay, right. I'm really good at not demotivating. Because that, that, you know, you think about how motivated someone is when they start a job. What's the half-life of that quality of motivation when they come yeah. up against some process? <laughs> when they, when, when they, I would say the end of the day, we're in a very different place. Yes, yeah, because my sense of control and choice gets taken away. Because yeah. all of a sudden, I'm being told what I have Immediately to do. Immediately challenged, do. yeah. So, so now I'm kind of going, can I do that? So my confidence to do stuff right, or i.e. not do it wrong and screw up, is reduced. And I'm feeling much more on my own because I'm different from everyone rather than part of it. So that's where a lot of that comes from. So let's take care of people so we have conversations amongst all of us that keep that sense of choice and control as high as possible, keep the confidence growing, um, as well as keeping connected to a shared purpose, whether for a team or the organisation as a whole. And it sounds common sense, but it, you know, it's, kind of, it, it's, it's a better option for us. To be deliberately provocative... How close or far away is that from never say no to anyone? Uh, I think it's a long way away from it because I, th I think it's be very clear about what we say yes and no to and why we say yes and no and why I'm the person to say yes or no or I'm going to be connected to someone so they appreciate the shared ambition that we've got and actually we can get into give and take. Yeah. Yep. And 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 so it actually should open up the opportunity to be really clear about saying yes or no with confidence because of understanding the collaborative requirements um, internally and externally. The no exists culturally. Like I'll understand whether I'm going to get a no most times out of my understanding of our organisation. Yeah. Or, or it's it's yes, and this is the implications of me saying yes. How does that sound? Love it. Absolutely. Um, so Mark's touched on the rules yeah. um, very helpfully. Um, I, I just want to drop rule 14 in there just for Mark specifically, which is relentless positive, positivity is silly yeah, and annoying. Yeah. <laughs> <because> I apologize, <laughs> Sean. Shut up. Yeah. Um, anyway. I'll be more negative. No, well, yeah, yeah. Relentless positivity is silly and annoying. So, um, so there's a whole bunch of stuff. If you, know, if you look at a lot of popular psychology um, literature, it's like you know, believe in the power of positive thinking. You must think positively. You know, you have to be optimistic. Well, you don't. It, it, it's 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 absolutely untrue. And there's research that suggests that if you are overly optimistic, you set yourself up to be disappointed more of the time. What it is saying is recognize the um, nature of personality that you have. So if you are someone who is driven by a fear of failure, it is likely that you will have negative thoughts which will lead to positive action. 
and it's the positive action which is the useful thing. Now, equally, someone who is negative, who's thinking negatively might actually just sort of become overloaded by the thinking negatively and not take positive action. Or take no action at all. Or take no all. action at all. But someone who is a positive thinker might just think positively and think that's enough. They're not taking any positive action. They're kind of checking out, going, well, I thought positively. I'm just going to wait for the glorious wonderfulness of this all to happen. So positive thinking with positive action is absolutely the, the, the right thing as well. So this is very much saying choose the power of your personality to drive the inner dialogue towards positive action, but be very accepting of there are choices available. So it's I talk about helpful and unhelpful thinking rather than positive and negative thinking. Absolutely. And just to just to defend myself somewhat, because I Doesn't feel like to. I am the 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 the, the positive thinker. Um, for me, I think that there is a the nature of that positivity is the the belief that there is a possible positive outcome. Yeah, and under pretty much any circumstance, whether or not it's the outcome I was expecting. Yeah, if you if you go back to Jim Collins, another another one stolen from Good to Great is the Stockdale paradox. Uh, so General Jim Stockdale, prisoner of war in uh, Vietnam War, he lived by the paradox of face the brutal reality of the situation that you're in whilst never losing faith that you'll triumph in the end. Bingo. <laughs> yeah, so the never lose the faith triumph, you'll triumph in the end is, so. but you tip the seesaw between the two. When do I need to be on a day which is never losing the faith? When do I need to be in a day which is facing the brutal reality? Definitely. I mean, that's, that's an, that's an awesome line. Um, and, and I think, you know, I was, I was messing around with Mark there because he's actually been asked by people, you know, why are you so positive? You know, so <laughs> I, I would see myself as quite a positive person and me and Mark literally share an office in our, mm-hmm. in our workplace and we balance off quite nicely, uh, with each other. And obviously we're doing this podcast together. Um, so, you know, our character works with each other and our personalities work and we're both quite positive. And it probably leads to positive action rather than just sort of bland, optimistic statements. If it's all going to be all right, let's just keep saying it's going to be all right. Absolutely. But it is interesting that on a day to day basis, people will be going into work and looking at colleagues going, why are they always smiling? Or why, why are they quite positive in the morning, quite cheery? Or why do they think that there is going to be a positive outcome at the end of this day? Because I don't have that. So I I do think that's quite an interesting one. But I, I have tasked you, Chris, with kind of giving us a couple of your sort of Planet K2 rules. Um, There are 21. 21, yes. There are 21, um, and we're trying to kind of uh, filter that into maybe three, three or four, if possible, that if you were, if you had to yeah. chop, chop, chop them we out. we chew on now. Indeed, yeah. indeed. So um, the, number one, the number one is is the one that we use a lot, which, which is stolen actually from Greg LeMond's cycling philosophy of it never gets easier, you just go faster. So, so uh, nice. we, we, we changed it to it never gets easier, you just perform better. So we work in a lot of high pressure, high performance environments and that, and it's true, you know, that no one has ever sat down and kind of go, right, we're going to make it easier for everyone. We're going to reduce the goals. We're, you know, we're going to stop making it hard. So we know it's going to be a hard environment. So if you, if it never gets easier, you've got a couple of choices, go somewhere else where it feels easier or use this as a constant stimulus to kind of go, I'm going to, I'm going to be challenged to get better. So, you know, it might not necessarily always be easy, but actually, I can perform better if I see the value of the choice I've made to be in this environment, environment as a stimulus. So I, lo- I love that one because it leads to some confronting conversations. Sometimes it doesn't feel that upbeat, but actually, once you start talking it through, it, it's pretty helpful. And I think, you know, there's, there's a number of other ones in there. So, you know, performance is performance, not results. Don't confuse the two. 
And, and most people can, you know, talk about performance when they mean results. How's your performance at the moment? That's not what you're asking, is it? You're asking me what my numbers are. Performance is doing the things you need to do to get the results that you want. So if you're going to ask me how's my performance at the moment, I'll give you an answer as to how well I'm doing the inputs. And then I'll give you an understanding of how that is leading to an influence on the scoreboard. So that that one is particularly powerful because most organizations don't get the benefit from separating those two out, but enjoying the relationship between them. So if we have both a performance and result obsession, that's particularly good. And I think the other, the other one that I like is um, if you're going to serve party food at a meeting, why not invite Coco the Clown, um, which is a bit of a dig at a lot of corporate meetings, which are full of fizzy drinks, sweets, and all sorts of other stuff, which, you know, it's not really fueling the brain in a way that is commensurate with the power and the talent and the expertise of the people in the room. You know, yeah. take care of the fuel that you use because in the same way that people happy in the morning is probably more to do with their circadian rhythms than it is to do with sort of, you know, anything else. You know, they're a lark rather than an owl. There's an awful lot of this kind of energy and physical side of stuff. That if we start appreciating that, we start to help people at work see that they are rounded performers where there's a mind and body combination rather than just, you know, um, carbon-based units of production. I also remember people showing up to a meeting, a really important meeting that was held regularly for the biscuits. Yeah. And I think that that undermines the nature of what we're in the room for. Yeah. I'm not saying we can't have biscuits, but if the biscuits are the most important thing about that room, it's... It's an unnecessary meeting. Yeah, we've, we've said for a long time, if you really want to sort of think about putting the pressure on getting output from a meeting, get a really big sort of um, uh, screen on the wall that takes the salaries of everyone and by the minute starts clocking up how much this meeting is costing us when we aggregate those minute by minute salaries. And by the time we come out, have you delivered a value which is commensurate with the number that so is the time we the spent in that room? Yeah, absolutely. Oh. Yeah. <laughs> uh, see, I, I um I think I missed the point on that on that rule, Chris. If I'm being totally transparent and honest, because I, or maybe I haven't in in the sense that you are genuinely talking about fuel. Yeah. And I'm I was probably looking at it from a performative point of view. So you know, in the same way that people kind of argue that away days and things like that, you know, that there, there is better things we could be doing with that time kind of like you said with that meeting then going away for a day and you know doing some arts and crafts and you know being around a bonfire with a guitar some people may think that that's a real game changer for their team when they come back and there may be some positives in there psychologically and maybe maybe you can touch on that but overall you sort of do go back in on monday morning and the environment is the same yeah and so nothing really changes yeah you know um having worked in high performance sport and worked in rowing the rowers get better at rowing by rowing every day they don't get better at going off and having a bit of a chat around a campfire there's an awful lot of value in at some point beginning to understand the people and talk about the motives but but actually if you've got a budget and you want to you want to invest in getting better invest in doing stuff that helps you get better at the stuff that you do every day at work so if, if it looks less and less like how you're performing at work, it's more of an experiential sharing than it is a performance enhancement tool. And, and there's a place and a space for both of those things. But I think organisations should spend more money on building in um, effectiveness habits that drive the growth of the team rather than we get to know each other better. You know, we, we have got the other rule, number six, which is you're on a talent development programme. 
So you don't need to be put on a special training program in order to be given permission to get better. A team shouldn't need away days to have stuff in the diary, which is which is giving them the chance to become better at being a team. So that, that, that's but at the same time, that stuff that's in the diary shouldn't be nonsense. No, <laughs> it shouldn't be. It oh, shouldn't oh be. God, no. a, it shouldn't be a holiday, which I think a lot of those a lot of those things are built as as rewards. Rather than develop, our, our entire elite team program talks to teams about building their own performance calendar, which has stuff in it, which is critical conversations that take place regularly that reflect upon how are we developing as a team and what is the evidence that we're growing to become the team that we need to be to ful- to fulfil our purpose and our goals and our measures, and 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 that is where you've got stuff in the diary, which is which is systematically helping you get better at performing as a team. Yeah, I think about those action learning uh, exercises. It's, it's absolutely, and and anyone who knows the agile methodologies and how that's been used as well in organisations, agile methodology is is just very simply very short feed forward and feedback loops that keep you on track for a project to be developing. Well, this is just about the project of a team getting better at being the team that it needs to be. It's those it's the same thing, but organisations don't do it because they're busy focusing on the scoreboard. And trying to turn it over rather than focusing on the on the thing that turns the scoreboard over. And as people working in education, the absence of financial outcomes, you know, bottom lines, that doesn't change it at all. It's all still there within the results. Oh, we, yeah, we've worked in charity sector, all sorts of different sector where actually, you know, there are, there are far more important outcomes which which define success, which aren't to do with metrics, but they, they can equally get in the way. Chris, do you see, um, obviously at the moment, you know, Planet K two is a is a is a company, and, and organizations are, are bringing you guys in. Uh, I would assume that's how that's kind of how it works on, on projects, mm-hmm. or you know, for consultancy. Do you see? You know, we do have chief people officers, which may or may not quite cover the whole of this kind of teamship that we're talking about and and culture. Um, do you see kind of organizations like yourself almost being inbuilt within these companies and and roles being there? you know, full, full time in, in 10 years time, you know, in the future, do you see the, the importance and the relevance of it or, or is it just knowledge that you have to bring in as an individual? So I, so I I think the organizations will increasingly have the choice as to how much do we want to try and outsource some of the expertise and how much do we want to try and build it in for us in terms of the work that we do. Uh, we seek to help the organizations take ownership of the information and take it internally to kind of say, this is our version of the performance stuff that we're talking about. This is how we're going to embed it into our practice. So, you know, with one of our customers, we built a team effectiveness toolkit, which is effectively available for leaders and teams across the entire 60,000 people to be able to kind of go, well, if if we do team in this organization, there's a team effectiveness process and toolkit that goes with that so that we are going to create that. And so we, we built that with them in partnership using their own leadership models, their own existing frameworks for development and, and performance management individually. And, and, and that therefore allows them to have a sense that, you know what, we want to make a stand as to how team effectiveness is done here. And that becomes theirs rather than bringing us in. So that, that kind of sits between the two. They've still got their organizational effectiveness team and their HR business partners and et cetera. Um, but it, 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 there's something there that has been created, which then, you know, to a greater or lesser extent becomes the starting point of this is how we do some of this human performance stuff in the same way that we've got health and safety procedures and we've got other things that 
we are, we're all expected to understand and, and carry out in, in the company's way. And, and just from a logistics point of view, Chris, because, you know, the company has to commit to, to this process, you know, with, with your guidance and you guys are putting in these tools. Logistically, what are we talking about sort of time frame wise? Because if someone's listening to this episode and, you know, they're a founder or they're a director or CEO or, or you know, they're on a board or something, and they go, wow, this seems really interesting. You know, we'd love to do this. Are they going to commit to that amount of time to, to get it done? And, and does it really show the purpose of the company if indeed they're actually bringing you guys in to say, yeah, we are going to do this for X amount of time until we're happy with it? Yeah, well, we, we won't work with them unless they are committed to put the time into it. So, so it's, it's, it's a very simple sell for us in terms of this is the value of what you're looking to do. This is the cost of not doing it. However, you need to appreciate that value equation and, and understand what's going to be required and how we'll partner with you to sort of create the, the, the ongoing program of work, the collaborations, the partnerships. This is what this, these are several versions that we can play with. And, and, and let's have a look at which of those options feel right for you commercially. They may build in some way as well. But unless you're serious about the, putting the human performance factor first, you know, it's just going to be another program that's paid lip service to that in a couple of years' time, someone will go, oh, I remember we did something like that. And it, and it, it was another one of those things that was never really followed through. Um, so it, it is, it's, been, it's, it's about being serious about what it takes to take your already existing high performance organization and add in some of this human performance um, focus that, that makes the whole become greater than the sum of the parts in as many ways as possible. So if I could pick up on something you said earlier, and this is tied to something I read of yours that was on the Performance Room, mm -hmm. which is a web-based resource and training bank that you guys have put yep. together. Um, you said, if the team is really a team, and I know that you have some resources on when your team might not actually be a team, what, what, do, you, what do you mean by that? So if... If, if someone asks us to come in and work with their team, the first question we asked them was, well, are you actually a team? Okay. Be because you're using the word, we, we're, we're, you've got to convince us that you are a team. But actually, even if you're not a team, there's probably still some kind of collective performance taking place. But we want to understand what the specific nature of that collective performance is. So is this a single leader that has 11 people reporting into them so that leader is at the kind of the hub of the wheel and these spokes, but that, you know, that the, the, the leader is basically kind of, you know, herding those cats, but the, the 11 people don't have any interaction or, or they don't feel any sense of interdependence. It's a group of, of, of people who report to the same person. There may but be everything a, has to go through that one person. But there may be yeah. a missed opportunity in this actually upgrading to something that's more like collaboration and a, and a community of, of practice and effectiveness. Um, there may, you may be a leader of a team that has kind of got four or five people in it where there is it's more like a relay squad where there's certain people that do certain things, but I have to finish my bit before I pass on to someone else. And so we've got interdependency. So, so we've got all of these different versions of collective performance and some of which are truly interdependent teams where everyone is sort of working in this very sort of, you know, dependent way throughout. Right, okay, and, and have we put all the fabric around that that allows us to all understand the version of team that we currently are? Because like we were talking about football earlier, 
you can be a player that gets transferred from three or four different teams, but they play a different formation, they're set up a different way, they've got a different philosophy. If I just go and carry on playing the same way, because I just fancy playing my role that way, I'm going to fit in some and not in others. So even when there is that, it's a known and understood team, we've still got to do the due diligence of letting everyone kind of know, but this is the version of this team that you've been on before, but this is us. And this is what we want from you and how you add. And, and this is, you know, what do you want from us kind of thing. In that respect, I guess, uh, and why we've chosen you. Yes, yes. And, and, and why we think you can bring in, you know, what you can sort of add. And, and you know, someone's left and you're kind of bringing something fresh and different as well as something similar. So it, it, it becomes a much more honest foundation for, for contribution, but growth as well. And so that's why we talk about, you know, you might not actually be a team and most people haven't been on a team. That's another thing we talk, you know, most people haven't been on a real team. That's crucial. Chris, honestly, that is crucial for me personally, as someone who's played sport, um, you know, not to, to a very high level, um, you know, because coaches didn't quite catch on to the small, uh, slim, uh, you know, technical player. Just how good you um, were in that- your own unique way. Indeed. Exactly. So the, what I would say is the coaching wasn't quite at the level it is now, um, you know, when I was playing. Um, no, but just being in a bunch of teams growing up, now I, I'm in the working world, you know, as an adult, it's really interesting to see how difficult it is for people to understand what a team looks like. You know, I'm part of, I've been part of run clubs. I've been part of, you know, workout groups and you know you know different football teams and and then in working environments and things like that social groups people the fabric of a team is very sometimes alien to people and you've almost got to like build them up yeah. to, to get to that point where they understand what a team is working coincidentally is not the same as working collaboratively. absolutely absolutely you know and and it frustrates the hell out of me that simon sinek decided to kind of do his start with why and the why what how thing because for 10 years before that we've been <laughs> We've been using why, what, how as the basis of our teamwork, not not the organisational way in which he kind of structures it, but you know whether, whether it's the organisation or a team. But if if you understand, well, well, why do we exist as a run club? Yeah. Why why do we exist as this kind of marketing team? But and, yeah. and that and that invites the question in terms of okay, well, what what is our purpose? And, and you know, ultimately, is there some kind of sort of end of sort of, you know, success picture that we're looking for. But then you kind of go to, okay, well, if we're going to be the group or the team that delivers that purpose, what are some of the indicators of success? What are some of the qualities and characteristics that we will be demonstrating? And are we getting better at demonstrating those? And then, well, actually, how do we go about behaving on a day-to-day basis that shows that we're committed to getting better at those what measures and those effectiveness indicators and that shows that we're committed to the purpose and then we get this alignment within a team or a group so a run club can still have a collective focus even though it's a group of individuals coming together for their own reason to get fitter it hasn't started as a we need to do this to sort of aggregate the calories expended by everyone to capture them in some <laughs> energy bank to produce something that otherwise couldn't happen yeah so but but the why what how when we start looking at it allows any kind of collective performance to be focused on making the whole greater than the sum of the part and allows us all to know the part we play but also what's in it for us as well as what we contribute to us i i think showing up has been one of the the standout features for me in terms of different teams i've been a part of the importance of understanding what showing up means so for me that's both physically in terms of be there every week, 
Yeah. And then, uh, you know, or every session. And then secondly, mentally show up. Mm. So, yeah. you know, I, I know you've spoken about scaling before and, you know, asking yourself where you're at on that scale. Are you seven out of 10 today? Are you eight out of 10? But you're still eight out of 10 at that running session. So ho- hopefully I'm not getting that wrong in terms of how you're going about, but you're still there. Yeah. The, the, the scale, the, that, that sort of how am I showing up bit is, 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 materially impacted by one of the things that is most significantly missed by most teams and that is doing role clarity or contribution Mm. statements so given this is our purpose and this is given this is how we're trying to develop as a team and our day-to-day behavior what is what's your role what's your contribution if you weren't here these things could not happen for us. So, so do understand the value of by you showing up and being you and being the best you you can be, that will help you show up better because you now have personal connection and meaning rather than just, well, I'm just another person who's part of this group, aren't I? No, no, you're, you're a person who's contributing and has a specific role and that's got interdependencies with some of the other people. Yeah. The I'm a cog in a wheel is one element. The I'm this cog. And if I, yeah, and that's the biggest thing. And if I'm not there, this doesn't happen. Yeah, and we assume that by giving you a title of a cog, you understand exactly what you're supposed to be doing with all the other cogs around you. And by some amazing osmosis of minds, you know, blending of minds, you know, we become this this team. Oh, it feels like there's there's two elements to that. Then it feels like from a teamwork point of view, the role or contribution statement that says i know why i'm in the room and then from the performance side of it the i recognize my responsibility and potential to be better in this room today than Absolutely. i was yesterday. And, and, and therefore i'm leading the team from my position and i'm demonstrating yeah. that and you know yeah. this this just comes from classic sports psychology group dynamics research um uh, Bert, Karen, and colleagues, role clarity role acceptance role performance you can't get role performance if you haven't had role clarity that is then accepted that I've got the will and the skill to do it. It also allows for autonomy as well, which becomes massive in the motivation. Uh, yeah, yeah. So all, all of our stuff constantly wheels around self-determination theory of, of, mm. of sort of we use control, confidence and connectedness. Yeah. But it, uh, we, it, it, yeah, everything we're doing, we're linking and labeling to the teams or the groups that we're working with. Look at what impact this has had on your sense of choice and control. Look at what this has done to your sense of confidence that you've got what it takes. And yeah. look at what this does to your connectedness to the shared purpose of team or organization. Which fundamentally goes to that kind of psychology of identity of who am I right here, right now? Yeah. Yeah. And if we can, and if, how do I feel about that? Yeah. And the fascinating thing that I'm talking to organizations at the moment about, I ask people, how many teams are you on? And they'll typically sort of have five, six, some people stop counting at 20. But we don't make it easy for people to get all of that aggregated value in each of those things. We, we, we give them different ways of different, the teams are set up in different ways. So I have to try and remember all of these kind of different team things rather than kind of go, no, actually, I've got a standard way. And, and it's easy for me to understand the value of my contribution. So I'm now even more connected by all of the team relationships rather than having some teams I love being on and some I'm kind of not really sure what I'm supposed to be doing. Feels like having that that big bunch of uh, caretaker keys, but where none of them have got a label on. So you're going through each one, all of yeah. them every yeah. and time. There's, and there's, there's a, there's a the couple door. of them labelled, which you get to and go, oh, "Thank God, I love this key." Yeah, and yeah. and you know, so it's 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 absolute. I have one quick question before we get on to. Uh, I say quick question. One question before we get on to coaches make coaches, and that is, in terms of performance. 
there's often a role for someone who who is there to sort out injury. When we're talking about sports people, mm-hmm. there's a whole there's a whole team devoted to fixing or rehabbing what went wrong. And sometimes that's a physical injury. Is there what what do we do when a when a team gets a sprain? When a t- when the teamwork element gets injured or fractured, is there a, is there a process of recovery? Yeah, so so this this is this is where again you know when we're asked to come in to fix something we kind of go okay mm. well, we're, we're not gonna, we're not going to fix it but we're going to put some processes in your place which stop you waiting to need to fix something right so so what 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 are your regular procedures for constantly assessing where are we at how satisfied are we with that what are we going to do next to advance our position of development and effectiveness and and if you're constantly doing that we don't have to have special procedures for fixing stuff or, or sort of making stuff good that's already better. So, so I, I, I just don't buy into all of that thinking. It's just like, well, yeah. there's no point. Let's just do stuff that helps us get better at getting better, whether we're getting better from a point of disappointment um, or whether we're getting better from a point of delight or anywhere in between. Because it's it's right. the and same. There's no, thing. there's no value in taking the the taking time off to recover if you injure your injure your knee like that. There's there's no point in that prehab. All, 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 <laughs> yeah, prehab. Well, yeah, the, all the the physios that I've worked with over the years have been as have contributed more to the um, uh, insurance that athletes aren't going to get injured than they have to doing a brilliant job of right. of you know helping the athletes recover when something hasn't gone right. So you know you. It's just an absurdity to me, you know. Yeah. Please come and fix this. Well, you know, no, we'll we'll give you a way of working whereby which you can just keep growing. Why should we yeah. assume that it's always going to be a beautiful straight line of constant development and delight? It's not. But what you can do is you can be set up to understand how to keep growing and learning from different stimulus. Yeah, and that quad that that quadrants you were talking about earlier about yes. acceptable and unacceptable failure and success, like that feels like one of those tools. Like, yes, we didn't hit what we were going to hit, yeah, but how did we hit it or not hit? Yeah, it? that's why you have to define those quadrants in advance to be able to use them as a guidance system rather than wait for the end of something and kind of go right. Which category does that fit in? Yeah, yeah, and 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 so we're using these things as points of reference. Yeah, and and the other thing I just challenge people say, look. You know, you're constantly going to want to get better anyway. So therefore, let's just accept that fact and just work out that if we are going to constantly want to get better, it doesn't matter whether we're disappointed or delighted. We're still going to want to get better. So let's just get better at getting better. What do we do next? Yeah, what do we do next? It's it's the next conversation is always the thing. We're just going to, we need to get better at having that conversation with slightly different emotional content. I was going to say, with less shame, with less blame, well, yeah. with less... Well, yeah, so if, if if I am disappointed, I'm having that conversation where I'm carrying that emotion of frustration or kind of, you know, what-ifness. Uh, but if I'm delighted, I've still got to do the due diligence of picking the detail out of how come it was so good. Yeah. Because that's when we get the magic, because you get better at good days rather than kind of going, it's all right, it was a major success, let's go and have a beer. And then, you know, or... Well done us, we did a magic trick. Yeah, we, yeah well done, we did, you know, but and then, but the other bit, you kind of go, it was, it was terrible, we better have a post-mortem. So organisations get better at not having a bad day, but they don't get better at having a better day. 
Yeah. I think there's a there's a neutrality about that where you don't get too high and you don't get too low, especially from an athlete's point of view. Yeah. You look at sort of like quarterbacks and stuff like that. You know, you don't get too high, don't get too low. Um, try and stay in that kind of neutral space. And I think that, you know, you, you mentioned Alex Ferguson, Sir Alex Ferguson uh, before, you know, Rio Ferdinand has spoke about winning trophies mm-hmm. and, you know, the next day they're, they're training or they're, they're at the training ground and we're on to the next thing. There's yeah. not, there's not a week of high-fiving each other. And that really sat with him. He was really surprised, especially when he went from Leeds to, um, you know, United where he, you know, he hadn't won stuff. It's kind of like, you know, w- without having a dig at Leeds, I just mean no, going no, f- always to, always to a, a global. Move, always a popular move. Yeah. Someone <laughs> to go from Leeds to Man United. So it's good. Well, ex- ex- exactly. But just, just from that uh, winning mentality, it was just a gear shift for him. And I think he was expecting to, you know, party endlessly after winning Champions Leagues and league titles. And no, excellent work. Well done. Let's move on. (laughs) What are we doing next? And I think that's that relentless drive. It it, it is, but we do talk to an awful lot of organizations about the importance of celebrating success and marking it in the right way. And, And where you've got the what and the how present, so this is what we achieved and this is how we did it. And we're going to celebrate the how and we're going to love it. And because that's going to feed forward the, the, uh, the motivational stuff that gives us a sense of control that we can make it happen again. Yeah. So you, so you've boosted event budget <laughs> where, where possible. <laughs> I like value. that. It's all, it's all about value. It's all about value. Absolutely. But yeah, naming the, what it was in the process that went right rather than what simply what we achieved, what we achieved. Yeah. yeah it's, it's a, it's a celebratory postmortem in and of itself. It, it, it gives stuff a name in a really, really helpful way. And that vocabulary, you can then tie some bigger concepts onto or some, some finer details onto by going, remember, that was the thing we were saying when we were cheering. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and, and, and to be honest, it's, it's so, you know, it's all based upon, again, this concept from the world of elite sport is that if you've got a strength, you don't just kind of go, that's cool. I'll leave it be. <laughs> it, it's it's about making the strength stronger. You know, there's so many organisations that have strengths that are taken for granted rather than strengths that are a source of paranoia that yeah. we might not be making it as good as it could be. Um, and, and that's where, again, you so I, I talk about this regularly, but Steve Redgrave's philosophy that on his worst day, he wanted to be good enough to beat anyone else in the rest of the world. Yeah, You make your best day as good as possible and keep making it better whilst closing the gap between your best day and your worst day. But it's the sequencing of that that's key. If you start with making your worst day less bad, you miss the opportunity to make your best day better. And when you've got both of those in the mix, that's where a lot of this stuff comes from. And it's, you know, kind of get the balance right again. It does make me slightly baffled at the concept of training, training people in stuff they're not good at as well as continuing professional development. Yes. Yeah. And, and, and if it's not stuff that is required of them on a day-to-day basis, that is materially going to make, you know, um, make, make the performance work better. Rather than sending them on a course for the stuff that they are already amazing at, but still have room for to to become a better leader and perhaps be able to become a a coach of that instead of just the performer of it, which is probably a nice link for you to pick up on. A hundred percent. That's professionalism (laughs) right there. Thank you. We didn't, we didn't even tell Chris to do that. Um, Chris, thank you for that setup. Um, we like to ask our guests, um, you know, kind of their influences and, and kind of anyone who's impacted them on their journey as to how they kind of lead um, and how they go about working in a team. Uh, we call it coaches make coaches. Um, from a sports side, 
psychology point of view, you may have a slightly different take on coaches, make coaches and what that means to you. Um, and I'm really interested to hear that. So, um, over to you. Yeah, I, I so, so I always take statements like that and see it as an application to someone else rather than thinking about the application to me. So that that's kind of you know that that that's that's kind of our role. But in, in terms of those those people who have influenced me, there's been there's been you know a huge amount of those individuals. So you know, Dr. Steve Ball was my PhD supervisor. He and I co-wrote a book while I was doing uh, just after I finished my PhD, and we did quite a lot of work together. You know, Steve was a Sort of a, a really sort of um, strong uh, name and and uh, had a strong reputation in sports psychology late eighties early nineties in two thousand did a lot of work with England's cricket team men's and women's through the nineties etc so Steve, Steve was always a kind of a very good uh, influence and and sort of provided me with a lot of the confidence and opportunity to kind of get going and that that kind of um, helped me early on as well and and. Most of the coaches I've worked with over the years have been a very strong influence, actually, because, you know, the coaches, they set a daily philosophy. They're, they're the psychologists in sport. They're the people who are kind of shaping the attitude, the, you know, give it, setting the tone of the culture clearly on a day-to-day basis. So, I, you know, I've, I've learned a lot from collaborating with a lot of great coaches as well. So it's been, it's been you know, I've, I've probably taken a lot from a lot of those people over the years as well. So, um, but but I guess the other take... I have on the coaches make coaches is that the really good coaches pass on their knowledge so that the athletes can self-coach and self-manage and self-regulate and become problem solvers and become, you know, confident to be their own, you know, applying what's been learned together with the coach so that they have a lot of that knowledge. But it also means that the coaches, as a result of that, need to become better coaches because their charge has become more independent. So the coach has now got to be thinking about how do I work with this upgraded version of this person? How do, how do I, you know, I've made a coach of this person for themselves, but that doesn't make me redundant from being able to add value now as well. So I think it's, um, that's the other stuff that comes to mind for me. That that coach athlete or coach, uh, uh, usually kind of director, performer relationship, I think it's fascinating because what, like we'll often find working with young people is you'll stay with one coach or one person until you hit an age group and then you'll move up to the next group and meet a completely different person. And that puts an interesting spin on this idea of can I keep getting better as a coach on the skills that I'm currently having to develop when the athlete is, is always up. coming in at that at that, lo- at that new lower level or that new beginner or that intermediate or that advanced yeah. level. Yeah. Uh, how do I, how do I get better at doing that version of coaching? Yeah. And, and I, and I'd, I'd encourage those coaches to talk to the coaches who they're handing over to so that we get much better at, you know, sort of setting things up for the handover. So it becomes, what do you want, what do you want me to send you? Or what, yeah. Or, or, or what, what, yeah. What's the, what, or what's your style and what's some of the stuff that we can prepare them for, you know, but at, but actually, if you see it as a duty of care of the person who is move, moving on, you, bec- you become much more mindful of that that transition period and being able to coach the transition in there as well. Because I think that's a, that's an important part of it. I think only only good coaches would be able to pass on information to the next coach. You know, especially if we're talking about individuals because they've spent the time and they've put the effort in to to understanding their stories which you kind of mentioned earlier about understanding the story of of that athlete so even if you're looking at say uh, an academy at football or even in a, a rowing club you know and you've got your you know under 12s up to up to senior um kind of all those coaches working in there if they understand all of those individuals within that under 12s and they know that Sarah has certain capabilities and she quite likes this language and these key words to pass up then to the under 15s coach, 
you don't get that unless you've put the groundwork in with those, with those individuals. And I think that is really important. So, um, so yeah, passing that upwards is, is, is yeah. And, and, and if you're all part of the same system, what's the overriding philosophy that is guiding all of us. And what's again, it's back to that contribution and role clarity. So this is the bit that I, you know, that I contribute and how I do that. And this is the bit that I'm working with people to take care of, um, you know, in the system as well. So I think it's, it, it's, it's again it's sort of trying to get between that kind of the why what how what's the purpose of us together and you know what are some of the characteristics that we're all working on and row, rowing is a nice example because you kind of go right well is, is there a technical pattern that we particularly encourage the development of and so that people can kind of see this is at this is they're obviously from that club because they've got a you know this technical fingerprint as to how they do stuff and you know and, and, it, and it starts from there but then it goes into the the spirit of what it means for us to be in a boat together and, you know, how we sort of go about our training and everything that we look to do around it, you know, all of the different bits of the performance pie. It's so, so interesting and, and, and practical as well. This is not for the podcast, but I run two drama groups, one with a young seven to 11 and one with 12 to 17 and they've actually quite diverged in their style of performance making and so we're finding transition a really really challenging thing for some of our young people who are hitting this older group and realizing we're asking them to work in a very different way so that's given me some food for thought yeah yeah but but that sounds like it's a deliberate thing so you're part of a system that has these contrasting styles isn't that great how's that going to help you develop in terms of your overall sort of you know uh, performance range as well so you know we've got we're going to get this and how what, mm. because the other thing that's really interesting with this stuff is what's the same as well as what's different yeah when we make transitions we start to focus and you know it's transformational change in organizations we spend too much time focusing on what's changing rather than what's the stuff that is actually the same yeah as if we go from the same that's our bridge of confidence between the two mm. well i think about how you talk about um the fundamentals about like the i think i heard you describe it as train what's left when yes the co- when the yeah. coaching stops yeah uh and actually the kind of try to capitalize or utilize the fundamental stuff that they've learned in the lower group without repeating it yeah like so now you've got that now we're using it in a different way, which is a, it's a challenge for them at 12, but it's a good one. Yes, it's, it's, it's my bastardization of the Bryant Skinner quote. Education is that which remains after what has been taught is forgotten. So technique is that which remains after what has been coached is forgotten. Is the, exactly. Um, the final thing we ask all of our guests is, uh, is there anything you would like to plug or point our listeners towards? Obviously, we'll put links in the show notes for uh, Planet K2 and for uh, the resources that we've spoken about today. But what would you what would you want to throw people towards? Yeah, definitely. The, the performance room, which we've mentioned, I think, you know, that that's our sort of um, mission to try and kind of democratize all of this performance knowledge. So you can kind of get on the performance room and there's a whole bunch of sort of open source stuff. If you sign up as a rookie, which doesn't cost you anything you can get the information slightly more curated so um you know I'd, I'd, I'd love for people to get on there start you know filtering through some of the stuff we've talked about uh, about teamwork about motivation you know just just enjoy that because there's a lot of um there's a lot of really useful stuff that you can and it's really beautifully presented as well yeah, yeah oh, that's good to good to hear good to hear and um and so you, you know there, there's also a whole bunch of um interviews that i've done with people on there there's little there's there's many kind of 
um, conversations that we've had on there around topics. So if you want to listen to stuff, if you like an infographic, if you want some tools that you can take away, we, we've designed it to kind of be appealing in, in in different ways as well. So, you know, please go and have a look at that and, and give us feedback on there because we like to kind of, you know, build in new stuff that you think would be useful as well as sort of, uh, you know, blend the other stuff that you, you're sort of not, not quite getting or it's not hitting the mark. Um, and yeah, you know, just enjoy that content and, and engage with us on there as well. We do a lot of we do a lot of work on LinkedIn. So for me, sort of, you know, personally, I'm I'm sort of sharing a lot on LinkedIn as well as my other Planet K2 colleagues. So if you want to pick up on stuff, um, you know, there's a lot of mentors. Follow yeah, follow on that follow platform. On that we platform. love it. Yeah. So that's theperformanceroom.co.uk and there will be a link in the show notes to take you straight there. And does does Planet K2 have their own LinkedIn page or would they look we, for you? We, and have, we have any number of choices there as well. So there's planetk2.com website. Planet K2 has a web page. Um, so I do a lot of my own LinkedIn, um, but there's a performance room LinkedIn page. We, we've got everything kind of covered on there as well so um owning the internet well yeah. wicked <laughs> might, might, might as well it seems it seems um you know seos and all that kind of stuff seems to be very important <laughs> these days so Phenomenal. <laughs> uh, so yeah links to everything and to some of the stuff we've referenced uh, along the way in the show notes uh thank you so much chris for joining us for feeding us with that pleasure we're always a, always a delight to chat about this stuff and uh and it, uh, we'll, we'll do another hour on Team GB a later date. Yeah, we'll do it. Yeah, I'm always happy to chat. Awesome, Chris. Thank you so much. Um, as I said, I really enjoyed uh, listening to you um, on other podcasts. And, uh, you know, you're, you're an absolute fountain of of knowledge. Um, and it's really great for me to be taking all that in. And so I really wanted to share that uh, with our audience and, uh, and of course, with Mark. So thank you so much and for your time. And with our shared workplace as well. We're, we're going back to work quite soon. So we'll be bringing all of this back in. Yeah. And, and, and if, if you and other folks kind of, you know, put something into practice and, and you're kind of interested to share it, we always love to hear about, you know, what, what happened as a result of the concepts in action because the concepts are concepts until actually something happens and you kind of go actually here's how it made a difference that that's that's massively important for us sean when there's a guy with a list of rules i know you're a happy man at the end of the conversation absolutely <laughs> absolutely i mean as as we said in the episode there was i think 21 rules yeah. um with the 21st one being a bit of a a bit of a funny one if you go and check out check out the website you'll see what 21 I'll is i'll stick a link in the show notes to the rules because they're like they're golden and out of left field a couple of them as we as we talked about in the in the app yeah i mean i was a little bit confused around the um the party food one yeah. of, you know like break you know <laughs> don't bring don't bring biscuits to your meetings yeah exactly it's for yeah and and but he genuinely was saying about how to feel yourself as well like don't yeah. bring crap into a meeting where we're trying to be like high performance maybe bring in some some fruit and water yeah. <laughs> so that was, even that was quite interesting because yeah, you, know you can like, take we, it as a metaphor but yeah. you also can take it super literally yeah <laughs> and know that that makes the difference Absolutely. Yeah. It's a funny one. You know, we always want to be the guy to bring in some biscuits for, for, for the team. For morale. Right? For morale. And then we're sort of like on a on a low mid-afternoon because of our sugar intake. But um, you know, we're no nutritionists on this podcast. But uh but it was just interesting that I wasn't taking it literally, but I think uh that it can be taken literally as well. And that's what I found so valuable about both the basis for those rules, but also just everything Chris was talking about. It was as if everything had been selected from not just 30 years worth of work, but specific critical incidents 
along those 30 years. So those rules were so specific that I could almost understand what led to that rule being the thing that was now in place. I, I, I could imagine the meeting where the biscuits were. I could imagine, and there, what was my other favourite? Oh, well, we talked about it. The don't, the don't try and motivate people, which is a headline, is a straight up double take. What the hell are you talking about? Completely. And, you know, me and me and Mark looked through the rules before the episode and kind of picked a few out that, that we were interested in. Um, so it's funny that that the motivation one came up because I think me and Mark spend a lot of our time trying to motivate people to do a thing. Yeah. And we we experience that as quite expensive on our energy. And it's interesting to kind of sit back and go, OK, so that's maybe the wrong approach. I'm used to leading by example, but what am I, am I, am I doing the right thing in order to get these people on board? Or am I just doing a song and dance for an audience that aren't interested? <laughs> yeah, exactly. And I think he spoke about um, leadership, yeah. uh, not needing to be a motivator, but to not demotivate was more where they should live. So yeah. if you're work if you're going into your workplace and it's an enjoyable one and you know what the task is at hand and you know what your principles are and, and the values of the company and what your job is, as long as leadership doesn't demotivate that in any way, that's them doing their job. Completely. And it's exactly where Chris and Hal would be holding hands because you know in Hal's episode, he's saying so many of these ideas go somewhere to die or get, get shot down rather than flourish. And they're not even good ideas necessarily. They're just, they don't have the opportunity to be anything. And it's that same thing. Let people do their stuff and don't be the person that goes, eh. and that's, and that's your function. Hal experiences it as his manager gets out of the way. And at the time, I wasn't thinking of it as an active thing. But then I hear Chris talking about, like, consciously don't demotivate people. It's about doing something specific to make sure that that motivation stays, that the friction is removed. And I, I think what's interesting as well, when we do talk about the elite level, and we are talking about those rowers, there's very little that a coach or a sports psychologist would be saying to those to those guys and girls going out on race day. Because... The athletes don't need that. You know, they, they don't need a, a bunch of information. They don't need to be motivated for that because they're at such an elite level that why would these guys need motivating? If the coach is needing to motivate you on race Then day, you're in the wrong room. Then you're in the wrong room. And in that respect, it only comes down to, and I'm using the rowing as an example because I think it was one of our episode titles. Then the question is, like, does it make the boat go faster? Like exactly. whatever you're doing, your idea, my idea, Joe Blog's idea, like does it make the boat go faster? Are we on for the same thing? Exactly. But just to, to tie in my thought uh, on that point was just the getting out of the way. So that's the elite coaches, I think, know best when to move out of the way. Race day, pumping someone up is probably not what that athlete may need. They may need the coach to remove themselves from that situation so it becomes about the athlete in the same way you said about leadership and leaders doing the same thing uh, uh, and, and around creativity and I'm reminded of the conversation we had with Michael Moore about the team bus before the game at the end of the day do what works 
Yeah, it's 22 players with headphones because that makes them flourish on the pitch or it's no headphones because it's a distraction and they play terribly with uh, with headphones. You know, decide what your environment is based on the people within it. And as long as those values of, of the people you're working with align with yours, then I think you're on to a winner. You know, and if they don't, then maybe you need to, to recruit different people. Completely. And just a very quick one, uh, because it kind of got spoken on a little bit and was again in uh, the Dan Abrahams episode with Chris. Um, Chris worked with Francis Houghton, uh, who has a book out, Learnings from Five Olympic uh, Games. Uh, she is a rower. Really, really great stuff. Um, so I would... Uh, you know, implore you to go check that out. Uh, we do like putting book recommendations forward. Um, we think it's we think it's great to kind of dig and, and delve deeper. Um, I've been on a podcast hype recently, so I've been off my books, uh, but I'll be getting back to it soon. So yeah, you can also check that book out. I hope you enjoyed that chat with uh, Chris Shambrook. We certainly did. And we have chewed on it since. Um, Again, there's a whole bunch of stuff in there that I think we're going to try and bring into our daily practice. I'm notoriously bad at getting out of the way. And so it's something that maybe I need to think about. I'm, I'm a lot of standing right behind you whispering in your ear. I mean, you know, Mark, I think we started this podcast because we align with a lot of stuff when it comes to groups and teams and things like that. And I'm the exact same. I find it extremely hard to get out of the way. And that might be, that might be a young, a young people being both of our areas of practice that young people maybe do or we do feel like they need that motivation and we've only really known how to do it through cracking the motivational whip rather than that thing that Chris was talking about of remind them why they're in the room. Absolutely, with clear, concise communication. Uh, And if you can do that, then I think you're halfway there. Wicked. Well, thank you everyone for listening. We will continue to try and bring the best possible guests with the broadest possible reach. Uh, Teams are everywhere and we're trying to find someone who's done everyone. Um, Yeah, let's do this. We're going to throw out uh, a little challenge to ourselves. We are now... Uh, we did a little kind of count up of our episodes, not including our reposts for the Paralympics and such. And we're we're coming close to our 50th interview, our 50th uh, original episode. And we were walking around our neighbourhood on lunch the other day and we passed a, a small place that had a little venue in the back. And we thought it would be fun, interesting, a challenge. Scary. Also scary to maybe do a live one of these. So we are thinking we're going to find the best possible interviewee that we can and do one of our episodes before the end of 2021, live and in person. And we will be inviting you, the listeners, to come along and join in. And maybe we'll have uh, an opportunity to throw some Q&A on, onto the episode because we do get people coming back with us with questions or you know comments about the guests. So maybe it gives us an opportunity to do that. If there's someone we've spoken to previously that you're like, oh, no, I needed to know more about them. Let us know and maybe we'll get them back in or we'll go on the hunt for uh, the perfect guest. Maybe Dr. Max Slater. (laughs) We shall bring back our our, uh, messages to Dr. Max Slater at the end of every episode uh, and see if uh, he'll join us for our 50th episode live. More details to follow. I'm looking at Sean and he's terrified already that (laughs) that we've set this up. But I'm saying... Now it will happen. Uh, a live episode of There's No I Am podcast featuring us, a guest, and you, our audience, in person. 
if you want to reach out to us and talk uh, offer any suggestions or offer any comments or offer any more feedback uh, you can do it on social media Twitter and Instagram at Podcast or email us uh, mark or sean at knowipodcast.show the uh, buying us a coffee page is still up at www.ko-fi.something there's a link in the show notes uh, slash knowipodcast where you can uh, tip us a little bit if you think it's worth any money that we do this for nothing or you can catch us on LinkedIn and uh, we love interacting on there so you can send us a message and we will definitely message you back Thank you so much for tuning in for this one. We will uh, see you and you will hear us uh, next week. All that is left is for me to say goodbye from Sean. Goodbye, guys. And goodbye from me. Goodbye. You must be like the wolf pack, not like the six pack. Teamwork. Yes. <laughs>